0: Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Bang, zoom, 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 bang, bang, zoom, 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 bang. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is listener and that's what you do. You listen. On today's show, uh, we have my friend James Davidson. James is a former FBI agent uh, for 23 years. He served... Most of his career investigating violent and organized crime in Los Angeles and served in the Ukraine, Israel and FBI headquarters. Um, he's just a really impressive guy. I actually met him at a fancy dinner that I got to go to, which is, you know, not a normal thing for me. Mostly my fancy dinners consist of me, my wife and my child eating California pizza kitchen uh, straight from the to-go Tupperware that they have provided from the restaurant. And also extra bread. You know, California Pizza Kitchen's got a lot going for them. You know, you go there and you know what to expect. It's the same experience and it's a good one every time. But their to-go game is on another level. Like, you know, you go to certain restaurants, you get something to go. And they forget, like, the most important staple. I mean, and listen, California Pizza Kitchen wants nothing to do with the Curious Podcast. This is not a paid ad. By any means. Should it be? Yeah. You better fucking believe it. California Pizza Kitchen. Are you dropping the ball? and Not advertising on my podcast? Perhaps. But you know what? No bad blood, my friend. No bad blood. I'm still going to your restaurant. Even if you didn't give me the copious amount of extra bread that you give me every time, whether I ask or not. And that, that is a good restaurant policy. And then they do this nice dip. I don't know what it is. It's like, it's simple. It's oil, it's vinegar, it's herbs, but it's, I don't know what the proportions are, but when you apply that to a nice piece of crusty, like, you know, baguette, let me tell you, it's a flavor party in your mouth. And it's incredible to me because listen, I'm no chef, but I know how to mix herbs, oil and vinegar in my home. And yet I would never get that right. You know what's incredible to me? Salad dressing. You go to a restaurant. I don't know whether they just have suppliers who are doing it better than we are. But I have not found a salad dressing from the supermarket that has ever compared to even the most mediocre restaurant salad dressing. Am I wrong? Is this crazy? I don't think it is. But then again, you know, in Corona, I'm not going to restaurants. And you know what? I got to be honest. I don't miss it for shit. And while I hate the idea that people in the restaurant industry are suffering and I try to do my best to support as best I can with just like a copious amount of to-go food, the reality is, is that I don't miss the whole um, sort of showcase, the dance, the, the, the presentation, the jubilee of the dining out experience. It's been revealed to me through this pandemic that going out to eat is an Otter, waste of time. <laughs> Look, it's not and a nice celebration. Whether you're going to like a high end steakhouse to take you, you know, your old lady out for a nice steak and some cream spinach, or whether you're taking your kid out to fucking Shakey's Pizza for some skee ball and some mediocre pizza. Listen, I, I I can get behind the idea of going out to eat. I'm not crazy. All these lunches I used to do just to do them, to sit down and have what? A chicken Caesar salad? No, thank you. It's a lot of energy. You got to park, you got to go inside, you got to talk to people. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a rather sociable human. I'm not one of these like pent up millennials who wants to sit inside all day and order like Postmates and Twitch stream game or whatever. I don't want to play video games on streaming and order, you know, fast food to my house. Like that's, that's not my appeal. Like that's not my bag, but I also, I'm not quite sure it's necessary to eat out as much as I used to. I just, for what a chicken Caesar salad, that's going to take the whole experience is going to take an hour, 15 minutes, minimum, and then I gotta, you know, I gotta sit there. I gotta look at these other humans, these disgusting animals stuffing their faces. This is not a great treat. The reality is, is for me, someone who's had, you know, their own issues with eating, and I don't think that's new information for anyone. I was three hundred pounds on television, and I can't take it back. It's too late. My big fat body is part of the pop culture lexicon, and there's nothing I'm ever gonna do about it. But. I just try to make food fuel. I don't think every single meal needs to be its own mini sweet 16. You know, like the food experience is overrated. Get the nourishment down your throat and move on. Am I crazy? Again, every now and then, do it up. You Your wonderful partner, you get dressed up, you go to a nice place, you get some sort of hot lava chocolate dessert with the melted chocolate within the hard crust chocolate shell. I get that. I understand. I'm a person. But let's cut out a lot of these other meals. No, cook it at home, get a little to go. Go to your supermarkets to go section. This pandemic has really, and then I'll shut up because who wants to listen to this? The pandemic has revealed to me that many supermarkets have a, a, not only a formidable, but a respectable amount of ready to go food that you can eat in your car using the lid of the egg salad as a spoon while listening to a podcast. It takes about eight minutes, cleanups about two because inevitably, something's going to get on your leather seats and you're on to the next fucking thing. That's all I'm saying. And with the extra money that you have from, you know, not going to restaurants, make sure you tip huge. I'm talking 30, 40%. Listen, I've always been an adequate tipper. And by that, I mean 20% minimum, which I think is nice. If you're not doing 20%, you really got to reassess what your goals are in life. And if your goal is to be a bad person, then you're achieving it. Then job well done. If you're if you're tipping less than twenty percent, but you really have the opportunity to make someone stay here. And I used to be that curmudgeonly guy that thought like, oh, wh- I wish there was a tip can for for my job. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm saying. But you know, in the last couple of years, we've definitely seen you know, more and more tip cans for even the most trivial of things, throw a couple dollars in. If you know that person's in the service industry that they're putting themselves at risk with this friggin' Corona to look at you and hand you your latte, your burger, your baked good, your various other eating things, throw a couple dollars in and make eye contact with them when it happens and make sure they see. Don't do if, okay, This is a public service announcement from Josh Peck. Don't tip unless they see. Because the credit that you are going to get and feel when that person looks down and sees that you bought a $5 coffee and you gave them $2.5 as a tip, that's a 50% tip. Now, if if you can't do it, I get it. But if you can do it, if you could throw around $2, $3 like that, you are going to get an eye contact like you've never experienced. And it's nice. It's long. And it means something. So go out there and make hard eye contact with someone as you overtip. And then just ride out that feeling for the rest of the day. All right. I've had enough of myself. I'm sorry. I don't even want to do these long intros anymore. Uh, I recorded this podcast with James... Uh, right at the start, this is a few months old when we recorded this. We sort of did it right at the start of the corona craziness when we still didn't quite understand and and all the sanctions and everything had sort of come down uh, in March. So this was early March, but I I just am so glad that I got to to chat with him and uh, and I've been holding this one for a little bit, but I really think that you will enjoy this. Uh, be sure to check out James's uh, nonprofit. Protect the FBI, Uh, I believe it's protectthefbi.org, he talks more about it in the pod, but this is a great one. So enjoy James Davidson. I did want to start with, what's it like telling people that you were, while you were working for the FBI, I want to know that, but what's it like being like, hey, what do you do? Actually, I work for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. What's that like?
1: It, that's a, you know, that's an interesting question because at different points in my career, I've answered that question different ways. And it, it it actually, over the, over the long run, I realized that it it's, it's very off-putting. It almost doesn't matter when you say it in the conversation. And I'll tell you what, there's a, there's a distinction when you talk about the fact that you're an FBI agent between if you're talking to a girl, you're talking to a guy, Guys are actually more interested in it. And sure, I, I will, you know, it's funny because a lot of young single guys, they're in college, they're, they, you know, they want to do something exciting. They've, you know, they've, they were James Bond fans their whole lives, or they wanted to do some sort of service or whatever it was, you know, part of the persona of being an FBI Asian is being the, the shit as you, as you say, you know it's it's hey, I'm I'm you want to be able I'm gonna it doesn't mean that you're not gonna be competent that you're not gonna do a, a great job that you're not gonna be ethical and try to help people and all that but there's part of that is is you know I think guys maybe more so and this maybe this is gonna come off as you know chauvinistic or misogynistic uh, I don't know um, there it's much more about who, what they do. Mm. A, 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 at least when they're young, that's, that's, that was me. This is, so it's been a journey for me, um, uh, with that. And, and, uh, early in my career, I, I almost, you know, I was a very distinct individual, uh, in terms of what I believed in. And I was, uh, probably an old soul in my, you know, when I was in my teens, um, you know, I was the type that my dad taught me at an early age to, you know, when it comes to adults, to shake their hand, to look them in the eye, to ask how they're doing, to tell them it's nice to meet them. And so I was always one that can converse with adults. And um, I had, uh, you know, while I, was, I wasn't, uh, you know, uh, confined by my opinions. I, I had adult opinions in my teens. Um, and I was probably mature in some ways, immature in others uh, ahead of my time. And so when I got in the FBI, uh, I, in some ways, almost forgot who I was for the Mm. first year. It it defined me. And it took me a while to kind of realize, hey, I'm a distinct individual, separate and apart from every other FBI agent, you know, that I work with. And, you know, I've got to be me and I've got to take who I am into the job. So from that point on, it, 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 I kind of unburdened myself and, and I made sure that, You know, when I first met somebody, I, I, you know, I didn't jump into what I do or or, lead with. I didn't lead with. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's interesting to
0: your point about the the fascination and and the I, I would almost say borderline obsession that men especially have with someone in the FBI or someone of that that ilk because. There's an air of mystery. There's an inherent air of mystery about it. Because if you think about the gradation of law enforcement, we all deal with cops, right? They're in our lives all the time, usually, you know, not for the best of reasons or pulling us over for something. And then you've got sort of like the next tier, which is FBI, U.S. Marshals. And then there's like the CIA, where you're not even allowed to actually know if they're in the CIA half the time. You're like, is Rick our neighbor in the CIA? He travels a lot. But it's like... The FBI is not in your life. Do,
1: do you know how many mistaken uh, uh, identifications of CIA officers or CIA, you know, uh, uh, case agents or whatever? It, it, everybody has an uncle that's in the CIA because everybody has an uncle that's traveled extensively, and they don't quite know where or why or. But they're I've not. A, they're,
0: are you saying they're not in the CIA? I, most often, they're, not. they're any, not.
1: I can't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle Rick is not a. Is is more likely trying to sell, you know, hair care products in South America than than right. <laughs> more likely to be that than to be a CIA uh, officer. Um, But you're right. They, they can't talk about who they are in in general. And I've, I've worked uh, overseas quite a bit and uh, we have an office in, in most of the embassies around the world. And and obviously there's what's called the chief of station. It's an overt position that liaisons with the intelligence services of friendly uh, governments, sometimes Mm. even governments that are not so friendly. It's an open line of communication. They're there for a diplomatic reason. Um, And uh, even within those confines, they are never overt with what they do. So yeah, you know, they're just—it's just the nature of their job. FBI is very different. Uh, FBI is—it's primarily uh, a law enforcement position. Uh, there's also obviously a counterintelligence and counterterrorism component of the FBI um, that differs from most foreign. Countries they're structured a little bit differently. We are sort of unique in that, in that both our counterintelligence uh, slash counterterrorism is housed under the same organization as our enforcement or law enforcement. Um, other countries, those those two functions are generally separated. Right. So when we work in foreign countries, uh, we have relationships with both of their agencies: the one that handles counterterrorism. And counterintel- well, and counterintelligence normally, and then also their enforcement or their police, their national police usually.
0: Now, why so, why would you? I think that's and the the assumption most people have right is that FBI is homeland and CIA is international. So,
1: what reasons would you have to go international? So, m- most crime these days, uh, because of the, the the globalization of the, of the world. Uh, you, it's, there's, when you're talking about major organized criminal groups and cybercrime and, you know, all these different things, you, you cannot be effective uh, investigating and dismantling those organizations uh, unless you have relationships with foreign police organizations. You have to have those relationships to do your job. There's very few cases uh, that are confined within the, you know, Borders of the United States. It's, it's. I can't even think of, you know. Some obviously there's violent crimes that occur, and they're you know they happen locally or they happen, you know, across state lines. But but when you're talking about uh, organized crime, counterterrorism, um, you know, uh, organized cybercrime, uh, a variety of other types of of, of categories of crime you just you can't be effective the fbi cannot be effective w- without r- relationships with foreign police services foreign inc- counterintelligence services and also they would be ineffective without strong relationships with the local police uh whether it's the state local sheriffs lapd uh, we're in la obviously but it's the same everywhere uh, the FBI, and even if you go back and you read some of the like the FBI story, it's a, a book it was written in the nineteen fifties, very famous book on the FBI. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hoover writes, and uh, J Edgar Hoover write, wrote the introduction, and he talks about the relationship with the local police. So it's always been that way. As a federal agency, we rely on 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 partnerships with the locals. You can't can't be effective without them. So um, it's very contrary to what you see in in drama in the movies on TV shows there right. has to be that cuz drama you know d- drama is conflict right so what better conflict than to have the, the normally the bungling FBI you know, uh, interfacing with the sophisticated street smart locals. No, I yeah. I think
0: it's usually the opposite. Where it's like, if I'm the local cop on the TV show, then you're like the big fancy, you know, uh, Agent Davidson comes in and he's cuts, from the cuts FBI. the power,
1: cuts <laughs> the power to sector to, to sector C. Yeah, <laughs> Take, you know, take the takes Nakatomi o- Tower. Yeah, takes over the whiteboard. You're
0: like, listen, good work, your little work you've done. But I, the big boys are here now, yes. so you can you can step back. And I'd be like, "Fucking Agent Davidson over here! He's just trying to take over my case." <laughs> but but it's interesting. Like I, I'm fascinated to know why. It's funny. I'm I'm actually I'm playing a U.S. Marshal in a new TV. They're making the uh, Disney Plus is doing Turner and Hooch, uh-huh. the TV show. Oh, really? You're looking at the new. Turner. Turner, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So
1: I've been doing my research and talking to a lot of U.S. Marshals who are fabulous. Well, the Marshals, I've worked with the Marshals over the years. So they have a fugitive program. So they, they, they have a relationship with other federal agencies like the DEA, you know, ATF. And if they have fugitives, the Marshals are usually the ones that get the paper. Mm. They'll go after that. The FBI actually normally goes and pursues their own fugitives. Uh, since nine 11, the FBI's work. Uh, so like, let's say LAPD has a fugitive. Now they can either go to the marshals and that fugitive, let's say they know the fugitive here. I'll talk about a case that I had. So, uh, I had a case where there was a murder. Uh, uh, it was a, it was a little bit of a kind of a tit for tat. There was a uh, Armenian kid, uh, in a, in a, in a car and he, he could have been anybody he could have been a white kid. I don't It just happens to be Armenian because this, this, this case ended in Armenia. So mm. anyway, so um, he got into kind of a tit for tat, one of those arguments where they're swinging back and forth on the 101. And right by Barnum, um, the, the, this this guy was a documentary filmmaker. At this point, I forget his name. Uh, he pulled off the the on the, on the off ramp. You know, pulled over. I forget the name of the road. Uh, I guess it was on Barnum. Anyway, he gets out and he w- starts to walk over to this. You know, Armenian kid's car. He's driving like a Tahoe or something like that. And he just pulls that and, you know, may or may not have intended just to kind of nick him. Anyway, slams him, kills him. The document The, the, the documentary. The, doc- the Armenian kid kills the documentary filmmaker. Right. So LAPD gets the case. It's a homicide case. They do the investigation, they charge homicide. And uh, and then a detective that I happen to know and have known from over the years. Uh, calls and says like I've got the paper we think this guy maybe went to Armenia and and uh you know we're 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 looking for him and can you do some investigation you know with us and let's you know see if we can find him so ultimately we located him in Yerevan and we capital had capital of Armenia the capital of Armenia yeah I know it well yeah yeah I've been there well I've been, oh, well, I've been there I went, I went there <laughs> to get I've got a funny story about uh, about anyway so I went there for three or four days with with, you know, this LAPD homicide detective and, and the Armenian police, we actually worked in that, in that case, the nearest FBI office was in uh, Georgia, the country of Georgia. Mm. I'm trying to think uh, Tbilisi is the capital. And so they had a relationship and, and they, we, we worked in Armenia through the state department, the department of Di- uh, diplomatic security and, uh, yes. um, so Justin Otto is the, is the as actually still remember his name, he was the guy, the state department guy's name, um, uh, the guy that helped us. And, uh, he arranged for this guy to be arrested and we flew over and we, we got him. So, sorry, I just want to ask really quick, when you talk about working with
0: state departments, and I don't mean it in a nefarious way, but it, when you say working with them, does it mean you have to grease them? Like, do you have to do a favor for the State Department of Armenia so that they say, "Yeah, take them, you so, can have them"?
1: Actually, this was the State Department, our State Department. So this was oh. this was the U.S. Embassy in Yerevan, right? Um, but the answer to that question is no. We've got formal relationships, and and uh, uh, these are you know the the, prof- the professional nature of most. Um, you know, Eastern law enforcement agencies, they're, they, it's 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 not terrible. It's not, uh, you know, we develop individual relationships. Uh, a lot of times we offer them training. They come to, we have an academy in, uh, uh, there's an international law enforcement academy, uh, which is, I think, kind of run by the FBI. And that's in, uh, I'm trying, trying to think, it's in Hungary. It's in um, Budapest. Uh, Budapest. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then they come a lot of their officers they want they'll come to the national the FBI National Academy in Quantico Virginia so the answer is uh, almost never uh, there were instances early in my career when, when I worked on the border of Mexico in which we did treat our counterparts as sources that we would often or occasionally pay sure especially when it came to fugitives and that's a- far as I'll go with that. (laughs) But, uh, it's in in this case. So we went over to Yerevan and we spent a couple of days, you know, we, 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 we actually had some difficulty getting back. We had to, we had to guarantee there was, there were no direct flights back. So we had to guarantee your the European Union does not have a death penalty, so we had to guarantee, LAPD had to guarantee them, or the DA actually, had to send a letter that we actually hand-carried that they were not going to charge the death penalty in this case. Otherwise, they would not have let us actually fly back through Europe, and that was uh, the most direct route. So there's a lot of diplomatic considerations when you go and get a fugitive overseas. And, and this, wow. this kind of started as, so the Marshals could have easily been the agency that, LAPD originally called. That's how we kind of started talking about this. But in this case, they called us. So, you know, it just depends. They, they've they got a robust, you know, a fugitive task force. Uh, since 9-11, ours has kind of been mitigated a little bit because the FBI has devoted resources to other places. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I've been out now for for four years. So things in the last four years have changed in ways that I'm even unfamiliar. So, You know, everything I'm telling you now is likely still true, but it could be how we operate could be somewhat different.
0: Now, see, this guy is a, you know, anyone who kills someone's a monster, but he's a serial killer. He's committed a terrorist act in our country, something that was like, when we
1: get him back here, he's getting the death penalty. Do you fly them through Asia? So that's a that's a good question. So there was a there was a, a case that I had It was in the early two thousands. It's a very uh, it was a kidna- organized kidnapped murder ring, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we had two subjects that were in the the United Arab Emirates, and they were receiving the ransom proceeds, and we identified them and we worked through the Emirati government and also through the bank that was actually receiving the proceeds where the accounts were. They had a head of security in Abu Dhabi. And we didn't really know what exactly their involvement was. So we didn't want to commit to not charging the death penalty because we already knew that we had, we had not yet discovered we knew that our victims were likely killed. We had not yet found the bodies and we had not yet fully solved the crime. Mm. This was really our only lead and we didn't know you know, where this, where these two guys were going to lead us. We had no idea what exactly their involvement was. So we got over there, uh, and we, we tried to navigate through Europe and we couldn't do it. So it just so happens it was right after nine eleven, and the same bank was involved, integrally involved with all of the money that flowed in from, you know, however that worked with the terrorists, went to individual really? accounts around the world. It was, For it was, the flight
0: a, schools and everything that every, the Taliban. Yeah, to,
1: to some significant ex, ex, extent, a lot of the accounts were in this bank. It's nothing, this bank is a, above board, it's a British bank. It's a, it's a good bank, great people, um, but it was just central to, to 9-11. Mm. And so the director of the FBI, it was Mueller, he'd just been named director, he was over there to thank the Emirati government for their help in helping to trace all the proceeds and get all the records. So this is now January or February of 2002. So we're now about four or five months out from 9-11. So a significant amount of work had been done. And this kidnapping case, which began like on a Friday night, of course, after 5 p.m., everybody had gone home, uh, as most of these types of cases usually you know, happen know the worst possible time, but, uh, you know, everybody converged on the office and you know, we uh, got to know the victim's family and began to learn the facts and right after 9-11. So we got, most of us got pulled off of, on my squad. Cause it was, I worked on a, what's called a reactive squad of violent crime. We investigate kidnappings, murders, extortions, murder for hires, things like that. So we all got pulled off of that. And now we're focused on this. And so now this is, you know, it's, this is, a uh, uh Four months later, we're now you know going to pick up the two guys that were receiving the ransom proceeds and we couldn't get home. We couldn't find a country to transit through. So the director of the FBI, um, uh, we asked him to send a plane. So he was already actually already left on a plane. He was flying from Abu Dhabi to Dubai um, and through there. We have got, a, there's a man on the ground in every country. So the guy on the ground is called a legal attache. We spoke with him, he spoke with the director, and, he, and so he calls us when they, when they land. It's just about an hour flight from, you know, from Abu Dhabi over to, to Dubai. He calls and he says, look, they, they've made arrangements for you to get the, first of all, you've got to find another way. So you're not going to go through Europe because there's, you're not going to get a waiver on the death penalty. And we really didn't want one because we really didn't know exactly what their involvement was. And it, we, we talked about it the possibility of of getting that but we realized we just we didn't want it. So uh they sent the attorney general's plane. So they flew a G5 from Washington over to Abu Dhabi to pick us up uh four FBI agents with these two, you know, guys that had these two you know crooks, possibly right. the kidnappers. And now they're prisoners. Possibly, yep, yeah, now they're prisoners. So uh in fact, I still remember. You know, we're on the tarmac, we're with the plane, and the last thing that needs to happen is the Emirati government needs to drive the two prisoners up to the plane. I'll never forget the looks on their faces when they got out of the car in handcuffs and looked at a Gulfstream Five.
0: Oh my God! <laughs> knowing
1: that they were going to be taken out of the country because you know we had warrants and we had there was no extra extradition treaty, but the Emirati government said, "Yeah, we'll give them to you. Here, take them." So. We ended up taking them. We interviewed them on the plane. We had they, they, there was extensive paperwork that had been seized from their homes, um, some of which we also got from the bank. And on the plane, you know, we're, we're exhausted questioning them. I Literally, remember sitting there talking with them, trying to keep my eyes open as we're going through this paperwork. And then, not
0: even getting to to enjoy the PJ, baby. <laughs>
1: I, I I wish you know there was a the, this is what was on the plane in terms of food.
0: Yeah, what was the catering? I want the to know cater- what the, the federal department's
1: given for catering. You know, okay, so the catering. So this is normally the attorney general's plane, and the the two pilots couldn't stand. This is Ashcroft; they could not stand him. He would he would play the ukulele, which would annoy the the like annoy the fuck out of him. <laughs> and he would do it all the time. And he would never come up and talk to them. He would never say hi. And and then they were just telling a story. Like one night, they were there was this rainstorm. They were trying to get off the ground. They they didn't know if they were going to get. It. They were, they were going through pre flight check with dangerous conditions. And the one time that Ashcross decides to come up and shoot the shit with them is during this pre flight check in the middle of a of like a, a massive thunder right. and windstorm
0: crash. They
1: hated him, so they didn't keep any food on the plane <laughs> purposely because they didn't want him eating their food. So there was a frozen steak in the freezer, and that was it. It
0: Jesus, and this is a long flight. a
1: a frozen steak and a George Foreman grill. Yeah, it was a long, well, so yeah, so we flew like from uh, the Emirates to Diego Garcia, which is in the Indian Ocean. It's a a British naval base. Uh, And then from there, we flew to Guam. Uh, And then once you land in the U.S., immediately your your prisoners have to be they have to see a federal magistrate so they were so the, the Guam office took them in front of a magistrate we flew back to LA and then it took them like another several weeks it's the marshals because the marshals do all the transporting to bring them back to LA now ultimately because i'm i'm you know i'm telling a story about these two guys they they were just it, it wasn't a it was within the realm of standard business practice in in emirates to make a deal to receive money On behalf of someone else they had nothing to do with this at all but they did connect the dots and with their statements and their paperwork we were actually able to identify the kidnappers and ultimately crack the case it was critical that plane flight and being able to actually question them in the confines of a luxurious gulfstream 5 jet that belongs to the federal government, and when I say luxurious, I mean you compare this to the typical corporate Gulfstream Five and or the private Gulfstream Five, and it doesn't even compare in terms of uh, the amenities.
0: None of the crocodile interior and whatnot. No,
1: no it's a basic. You know, it's the basic. Uh, um, it's stripped down. None of the it's, upgrades. It's 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 the same color as as actually the seats that we're sitting in right didn't now. If you get a G five,
0: so you got to get got to get the upgrades.
1: I know. I know.
0: I um. You know, it's funny you say that. I remember one of the rare times I've I've been able to fly on a private jet, and I feel like a douchebag saying this, but was uh, with America's uh, legend, John Stamos. America's treasure, John yes. Stamos. And I remember he goes up to the cockpit because he's so lovely and magnanimous and he likes to chat with everyone. And he goes to say hi to the pilots and they're over the moon to chat with John. And and so he makes a great joke, which he's like, "Oh, I smell some booze up here. Like, you guys been drinking?" And they immediately go, oh, and they start pointing. They start pointing, and we look up, and they're pointing at the black box, which is recording. <laughs> and they're like, "Dude, you're gonna get our fucking licenses taken away. Like, don't joke like that." And I was like, "Classic Stamos." Um, so I want. So two questions. The first one is. To your point, right? It was revealed that these guys were actually not guilty in this massive ring. You're sitting on the plane, you're talking to them, and you know you're going to sit, you know, face to face with these guys for the next 15 hours, that they could possibly be part of what was like an atrocious act. Mm -hmm. How are you treating them?
1: Very well. Really? Yeah. I I mean, 23 years in the FBI and I've sat across from some, you know, very, very despicable people who committed heinous acts. Um, and uh, you always treat them, you know, the, the old saying that you catch more flies with, with honey is really, it, it, my experiences. is it's always been true. Now, I, I can't say that I've been, you know, perfect in, 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 you know, getting people to, to, tell me what happened to confess or, to, or to, to give me the details that I need in order to solve a crime or protect, you know, a victim or rescue a victim, whatever the case. It's such a
0: broad question. But what's that dynamic when it comes to interrogating, questioning someone? Like, what are sort of the main, uh, uh, having the the length of career you've had in doing that, what were sort of like the major takeaways that you found
1: were the most effective? Well, for me, it, body language was not uh, a, something that I was, you know, it wasn't a big factor for me in determining whether somebody was guilty or not. The the, the better way, the more productive or thorough way was really asking the same questions over and over again, going mm-hmm. through the same, you know, not, not to the point where they got so annoyed that they just finally said, okay, okay, I'll, you ask me it 10 times, I'll tell you, you know, they're not going to tell you the truth on the 10th time. It's just, you, you get their story. And then you go over their story with them, and then you go over it with them again and again and again, you start to flesh out more details, and you can begin to see if the details are the same each time they tell it, you know, if there's any kind of major differences. And sometimes it's a second interview. You go, you write everything down, you write down what they said, you make a report, the famous FBI 302 Mm. that you may or may not have heard so much about over the past three years with this whole special counsel and all that, and... So, uh, that's an investigative, it's a report of an interview. So it's not a transcription of exactly what they say. It's a summary of what they said, which you generally write from memory or from your notes or whatever. So you, you'll get that down on paper. You'll go over the whole thing. This is, if you're going to have another chance to interview them, you'll go over it with them again and again, and again, if you, if you've identified, now you're going to have you'll, you'll have interviewed other people. You'll know, you'll have a pretty good, pretty good sense of whether they're telling the truth or not. And then you'll begin to you know kind of unravel and focus on the inconsistencies um and then you'll try to get them to actually confess and tell you what happened or, or confess to the crime so um some people are probably better at reading body language than others, but there's no real you know I'm not a believer in 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 indisha of lying or anything like that it's it's not in like what? the the indisha I'm, I'm not now I'm not sure whether I'm using this word right the kind of what's the the indicators of of whether somebody's lying or not got it. So, um, is it true? I have a buddy who's a, a criminal defense attorney,
0: and he always talks about how the truth actually can have many different versions in the sense of if you're being asked the same story over and over because you're being questioned for something,
1: never trust a defense attorney. <laughs> well, never. <laughs> Never, never, never. No, no, God, Todd. Go I want to see what he has to say. I really want to hear.
0: Well, I really want to hear about that because that's great. Uh, we're not that good friends. Don't worry. Um, but like, basically what he says is that a liar has one story and they must keep it exactly what it, from their first telling of it, it never deviates he said, "Someone who's telling the truth, stories naturally have a little bit of deviation. They
1: evolve, yes, and and they evolve. If they evolve in the right way, you would expect that. He's that's exactly right. Mm. So it's a, a liar it creates a story, and then because you've created that story, there are no details to flesh out. There's nothing. There's nothing else. Right. So you that 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 those are other you know indicators. However, details sometimes change." because they realize that the details should change because those change details are more favorable to them. That's, that can also be an indicator. Usually you're, you're, you have to have some sort of other understanding of the crime, other information, other witnesses to really kind of help you isolate whether somebody's telling you the truth or not. So, and you don't always get a, you don't, you know, you don't always get the statement. You, you want a true statement, obviously it, it's, you want the truth. It's not that you don't want, you don't want somebody to confess something they didn't do. Obviously you just want them to tell you the truth and all its glory and it's all, all its details, uh, whether they're, you know, whether they're guilty or not, you want to know what they, what they know. So, um, in, in, it's, it's, you know, you just, you want to be, I guess, uh, specific and, and, you know, careful.
0: This might be a silly question, but I'm interested to know, like, how attached are you to the outcomes, inevitably, of these cases in the respect of, you could do everything to the best of your ability, and yet you're still sort of subject to the judicial process, knowing that somebody could get off on a technicality?
1: Well, you know, so that kind of reminds me of the the first case that I, I lost the first case I ever had. So, um, I for whatever reason, I didn't do an analysis of, uh, uh, finances that, that really needed to be done to show that this person was actually embezzling. I was a bank teller. She was embezzling from the bank. Uh, and, and so I, you know, in the end I had nobody to blame but myself, but you do get attached because, you know, I, I knew, we knew that, you know, she was guilty and, and should have been, you know, it, it she should have been convicted of the crime and jury, jury acquitted her. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that's the only case that I ever lost. Now the FBI agents, they don't sound like they go to court all the time. You know, you have uh, maybe seven or eight court cases over the course of my career that were actually mine that went to trial. A lot of them plead guilty. Um, uh, certainly on, in violent criminal cases, if you solve them, generally you're going to get a guilty plea, not always, but, uh, so yes, you get attached to it, but it's, you always, you, you have to, you you have to let it go. And, and, and if you do lose a case, uh, it may be because you thought and, and believed and rightfully that the person was guilty, but you knew that you weren't moving forward with the best of evidence. That doesn't really happen that often. You know, you've made, uh, you know, I, I often talk about subjective objectivity, um, you made some determination along the way, which makes you subjective, but you, you're objective. So you, you case goes forward, the prosecutor decides, hey, this is worth, let's put this in front of a jury. Um, you, maybe there's some sort of evidence that just can't be presented in court for whatever reason. You know the person's guilty. You believe strongly believe the person's guilty and you want a jury to decide, but the evidence is just not quite enough or can't be presented to a jury in the right way, but you, you do what you're supposed to do. It's your obligation to... To bring the case to to move it forward, um, you have to make the decision in your mind based on the evidence, and uh, you know that that a person has actually committed a crime. So you don't say, "Well, I'm not really sure whether a person's committed a crime or not." Let's just let a jury decide. You don't ever do that. You 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 shouldn't ever do that. I see that happening in different places. Really. Uh, I, I think that it happens on the state level more often than not. There's maybe some indecisiveness as to whether they should be going forward with this case, maybe some doubt, uh, and they default to what they think is, you know, the ethical choice. Well, let's let a jury decide. Well, you have to decide first. Do you really believe that person is guilty or has committed? crime? And then usually that's what happens. So there's not many cases where you're on the fence with those types of things either. By the way, I'm implying that that happens a lot. It doesn't. Usually you've done an investigation. You know, you've got a pretty good idea of who did it and you're gathering the evidence that that you need in order to, you know, uh, arm a prosecutor to present that evidence to a jury. Or you do a fantastically terrific job that the person really has no choice but to plead guilty. And that's where you're going for every time, right? You want to slam dunk it. Nobody wants to go to trial. No one wants it's to go to trial. It's an enormous amount of effort, takes an enormous amount of time and preparation. And that basically becomes your life for the next na- I was in a six-month trial and then a four-month trial. I was in trial for almost a year on this uh, this kidnapping case that I was talking, the one that took us to the Emirates right after nine eleven. Um, you know, I basically live with, you know, three prosecutors and my 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 partner who was actually one of the most tenacious investigators. Uh, He's now the deputy chief at one of the local police departments. It was actually his case. I was what's called the co-case agent. Mm. Uh, But we were in the case together for several years, working very closely, traveling around the world, doing the investigation the IRS uh, criminal investigations uh, came into play and they had a big role. LAPD had a big role um, a lot of travel. We went. To, we actually did on this case. We did the first search warrant ever conducted by a U.S. law enforcement agency in Russia, uh, and this was back in 2004. Uh, and the the search actually occurred. It was in Saint Petersburg. It was uh, a very unique thing. First time ever that 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 had actually happened. Was Putin in office then? He was. He allowed that. He allowed it. Wow.
0: <laughs> Man, there must, was there
1: was more cooperation back then there was, than there is now. So. He was
0: getting hooked up by yeah. some congressman for that. That's a big favor. That's mm. when you got to have somebody like from the congressional district of wherever do a or a senator. Someone's doing a call.
1: It, it's actually done based on the relationship. The U.S. embassy there was a legal attaché the the FBI agent that, that was there, and they. I'm sure that there's still a working relationship for for there. There almost always is, no matter how. You know, uh, well, obviously with Russia, things may have changed a little bit in the last several years, but, but, uh, even in the worst of circumstances, there's usually, uh, help, especially law enforcement, to law enforcement, they want to even law enforcement in, in, in Eastern countries, they want to solve crimes. They, they, they're, you know, they want the training, they want the resources, um, to one extent or another, their, their systems might be corrupted. You know, I can't speak specifically. I did spend seven months in Ukraine. Uh, believe it or not, the ambassador in Ukraine while I was there, this was back in 2007, was William Taylor, the same ambassador that was there through the, the the whole uh, Ukrainian debacle and the impeachment thing. He's Jeez. a tremendous, tremendous uh, a man of, of, of high... Uh, uh, moral fiber and integrity i uh in fact uh just to give you an idea and i know we're jumping from topic to topic here no but this is
0: look this is a good stuff yeah. this is what people want to hear
1: so uh there was a a, a ukrainian oligarch who was sympathetic to the u.s so Ukraine has always been the object of a tug of war between Russia and the and the United States, Russia and the European Union, actually. It's it's we want to ultimately see them join the European Union. Russia does not want to see that for obvious reasons. Ukraine is a resource-rich country. It's uh you know part of the former Iron Curtain. The only deep sea port in the Black Sea that Russia has access to is the port at Sevastopol, uh in 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 Crimea, which is now obviously under Russian control. This is back in 2007. So there was an oligarch sympathetic to the U.S. wanting to see, ultimately wanted to see Ukraine join the European Union. And he was the subject of a money laundering case or or potentially the subject of a money laundering case. And the FBI out of Seattle wanted him, wanted to interview him. And so they sent a lead to me to try to arrange to interview this oligarch. And I spoke with the ambassador and the ambassador, William Taylor was like, yeah, no, let's no problem. What's let, I know him. I'll call him. I'll say, look, the FBI would like to interview you. Would you come into the embassy? And they want to ask you some questions. And, and I looked at him and said, I don't think that's going to work. And I, I don't, I don't know that, that, you know, Jim, I'm going to, so he, he ends up calling and the guy says, I'll get back to you on that. And and then of course, two weeks pass and the ambassador says, look, I haven't heard back. I'd like to call him again. And I said, look, ambassador, you know, this guy, there's, there's maybe 13 Ukrainian oligarchs that are significant. They're influencers, major influencers. They control most of the natural resources. You know, half of them want to see Ukraine join the European union. The other half are aligned with Russia. This is, you know, quote unquote, one of the good guys. So, you know, our diplomatic relations, U.S. policy, kind of takes precedent. You're going to piss this guy off if you ask again. He goes, Jim, I'm going to ask again. He calls him. And I know, I don't say anything to him. I know the next conversation I have with the ambassador is going to be, I got a call from his attorney, his U.S. attorney, not, right. not the U.S. attorney is in the United States Attorney's Office, but his defense attorney in the U.S., and that was the next phone call. So we never did get to interview him. So, I mean, there was a a choice. I've actually written about this before. I wrote some op-ed pieces in The Hill and kind of touched on this, but there was was a choice. Enforce U.S. law or subvert U.S. law to U.S. diplomatic uh, relations and policy goals, and that was ultimately the right choice. We, of course, didn't push it beyond that. Um, And I totally forget how he ended up on this topic who cares who i'm cares? glad Sorry. we're here
0: so much in that respect of of what you were just saying having like a very intimate relationship with the ambassador and whatnot what have what have your thoughts been watching everything that's gone on over the last year and a half with trump and ukraine and
1: well hey I will probably touch on the fact that I run a nonpartisan organization called Protect the FBI, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit. So I try very hard to stay out of the political fray, and I write from the perspective of the organization's goals and purpose, its objective, which is to safeguard the FBI from partisan politics. But that was kind of the tipping point for me. So I don't really have an opinion on whether he should have been impeached or not. The problem that I had is that the facts presented themselves very clearly. I watched all of the hearings, and the facts lead to really only one conclusion, and that is that he tried to obtain a personal benefit you know, by withholding foreign aid right. or, or, or by intimating that he would withhold foreign aid. It's a legitimate question, in my opinion, as to whether he should be impeached. It's a political question. Impeachment is inherently a political process, and it's intended to be. So you can make a decision, hey, yes, he did it. And Andrew McCarthy, who writes for National Review, is former U.S. attorney. This is his opinion. Um, it's obvious. The facts present only one conclusion does this rise to the level of an impeachment and that's a political decision and the Republican party could decide we're not going to impeach him over this and you could make a legitimate argument. The difficulty that I had was seeing uh, so many people actually believe or buy the media line that he didn't do it. I've heard the, the whole gamut of excuses. Well, this is just, you know, opposition research and it's perfectly okay that was one fox news commentator uh you know this was legitimate the questions about biden are legitimate well the questions about biden may or may not be legitimate but it doesn't it doesn't uh, uh legitimize the 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 quid pro quo which actually did exist and actually there's a a legal term and i forget the term but in any kind of, uh, of of crime where you attempt where, where there's a quid pro quo, the other party doesn't have to, actually have to know that they're being bribed. Mm. It, it's not. It's not the crime stops with the intention and and taking the first step toward trying to uh, obtain, you know, a benefit, a personal benefit in exchange for something of value, right? Which, right. So
0: trying to get the prostitute to get in your car is the crime, not whether or not they get in. Exactly. Right?
1: Exactly exactly so
0: and you know it's interesting because i too uh, uh, to your point i think you sum it up very well which is it's a political process the process of impeachment and you know we're splitting hairs when we're trying to decipher you know between that and just whether or not he was was guilty of this thing and and I'm interested to ask you this because I would get into these vicious debates with a buddy of mine who has very different politics to mine. And this is a savvy guy who works in a business that has a lot of their own version of quid pro quo, a lot of greasing and and you know money in the hand and whatnot. And I said, have you ever said, if you give me this, I'll give you that? I was like, no criminal in the history of the world has ever not coded their speech. And yet when it comes to this, even the most savvy people, if they, if they don't want to believe it are like, well, I, I couldn't
1: find that in the transcript. So that's exactly right. That's it. It's it's and Trying to explain that because that's the defense. Well, I didn't hear a quid pro quo in that phone call, and 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 Ukraine, the, the Ukrainian president, he didn't he didn't know. He said, I I didn't think that we were getting extorted, or or it's there is not uh, whether there's a bagman or or whether you use coded speech or whether you you know talk to my guy over here. You know he'll you know it's yeah, that's talk to the bagman. You know in this case, uh, let's I'm not gonna. I'm trying to leave as many names out of this as possible because sure. I have to be politically correct here because of this, the, the nonprofit. But so it's, it's uh, whether you could be listening to, uh, so early in my career, I wrote a lot of uh, wiretaps. So, and never did a drug dealer say on the phone, yes, uh, Mr. Smith, I'm going to deliver five keys of cocaine to you this evening at 6 p.m., you know, please just wait by your front door and I'm going to pull up in a Cadillac Escalade. Yes. You know, with... Uh,
0: with the amount know, of cocaine. With it.
1: Washington plates, with, you know, it's just, it's, you know, they talk about, you know back then it was, uh, I got, you know, five birthday cakes. We're going to celebrate a fifth birthday or you use coded speech and, and you imply uh, a threat. Uh, you talk around it. You use somebody else to communicate part of it while you simply withhold the aid that you know that they desperately need until the president somehow gets the message from another party, oh, in order to get the aid, I need to make an announcement about uh, an investigation. Oh, I get it. And they, they put the whole, that's, so there is a phenomenon with public corruption cases. Uh, and the electorate is very, very reticent To believe that their public officials are on the take. It's I I believe it's a it's a sociological or psychological phenomena. And when you investigate public corruption, it is rare that you would take a case to court unless you actually had a substantial portion of the quid pro quo on tape. Doesn't mean that it wasn't occurring in pieces over, you know, in some sort of creative, clever way. Uh, you might know that, but presenting that to a jury that does not want to believe that their public officials are corrupt—you um, know—based on this this kind of psychological phenomena, it's just not a case that the attorney's U.S. attorney's office normally would move forward with. Hmm. It's the same phenomena that happened now. People don't want to believe that it was as really as basic and as simple as, "Please investigate my political rival," uh, and unless you. Do it, you know, or or if you don't do it, I'm not going to release this aid that you desperately need, in you know, in order to you know continue to defend yourselves against you know America's arch enemy in the East, to your East. Is so. it is it part of the phenomenon too, as far as
0: as Republicans go or people who support Trump? I I found it correlated very much with the grabber by the pussy. In the respect of, when that came out, the Democrats went mad. But in reality, we all knew, left or right, that despicable, powerful men talk like that. And that he was just perpetuating what is a long-running locker room type conversation with billy bush and he just he just got caught and especially the republicans who were like really like you defended a guy who got a blow job in the oval office so don't talk to us about it mm-hmm. similarly with this it seemed as though anyone who who didn't want him to go down for it was saying of course this happens it's the government like of course people are getting greased of course there's favor stunts done, done like you just hate him but we're not going to take him down because of this. You just hate him and you're trying to use this as leverage, but we've all assumed that there's a lot of backdoor dealings in politics. Like, does
1: that... Well, you can draw a parallel and there's so many parallels between the Clinton impeachment hearings in the late 90s and what happened now. I mean, it's it's the pot calling the kettle black. You look at the statements that Democrats made then, look at the statements Republicans made now, you know, it's a little bit of the, the, the uh, belief that uh, clinton is i think there was a saying about churchill that they they that he was so important during you know the world war ii that he needed to always be protected with a with by a bodyguard of lies i think is the saying mm. um and that that politicians that are so important need to be protected by a bodyguard of lies it's it's um i don't know where exactly that that genesis of that saying is but it, you know in this context you understand it it's it's politics yes so um you know there's a, the, you, the moral equivalency uh, this is just the way it is it's it's you know, you got to you know, you got to overlook these things uh, to me that's scary i'm i'm a person that's data driven that's fact you know fact i'm not you know, emotions come into play you know you you misinterpret facts you, you, you those facts are always viewed within your limited experience everybody has their experiences in life and those experiences are always going to be limited right doesn't matter how you slice it they're limited sure so it, it's the it's the prism through which you view the world but i generally tend to look at the facts and i it it, it bothers me i think i get the most irritated when 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 people and we're talking about two different things. One, I was talking earlier about ignoring the, about just the disbelief, not believing that the, you know, being persuaded that those actually aren't the facts. You're talking about people that actually know, yeah, he did it, right? But I don't care. Um, that actually doesn't bother me as much. You know, the best thing for me is he did it. It's serious, but it's not enough to impeach him. So if I'm a Republican and and, and I'm a I'm a Trump supporter, um, you know, uh, I would be the Trump supporter that said. All right i'm going to support him because I think the alternatives are you know not are are insufficient mm. and too similar. Clinton's too similar to all these politicians, and you know trump's a renegade and and yes, I expected this from Trump at some point. It's a good thing that there's an apparatus around him that exposed this. I certainly don't want him doing that, but i'm going to support him and and I'm not going to vote to impeach and i'm going to vote for him in 2020, and you know, so that that's uh, that doesn't bother me as much as the people that 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 are simply persuaded by anything that they see and hear, uh, because it's it's you know, you can always, I, I don't care whether you're CNN or MSNBC or Fox or Breitbart, you know, there's a competition to you know, to to move. Uh, and I, I blogged about this a little bit. So, you know, with the media, we're not red or blue to them. We're all green, you know, and, and the green is in naive, or green is in greenback, you know, the good old US dollars. And, and if somebody outflanks Fox, if Breitbart comes and outflanks Fox or Newsmax comes and outflanks Fox, Fox has a choice, you know, move to the right or get slaughtered. CNN and MSNBC—they've got the same choices. You know, if MSC, MSNBC moves farther left and starts to co-op, you know, more of the the liberal and the moderate audience, CNN wouldn't have—they'd have the same choice: you know, move farther left or or get slaughtered. So, you know, with 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 American media controlled by you know big money, you know, major corporations, conglomerates, you know, that's it, it's a danger. It's a danger. You know, no matter which part of the media you watch. And, you know, so I cater that and I try to tell as many, you know, I've, I'm opinionated on this. And, and my family would say that I'm opinionated on a, on a lot of things, but, you know, I try to get people to watch everything, watch Fox News, watch CNN, read the New York Times, read the Wall Street Journal, read the National Review, get a variety of of opinions from a variety of places and use your own experiences, your own you know, albeit limited experience to make up your own mind, you know, and, and understand that people do have motivations. It doesn't mean every time somebody's, it just doesn't mean somebody can be motivated and, and, and be telling you the truth. You can't just say because, well, you know, he's a never Trumper, so he can't possibly be telling the truth or, right. you know, or or he's a pro-Trumper. I mean, I, listen, there's been many instances in, in, in the, you know, in which the right has been, Correct. You know the FBI has had you know many many issues. Uh, obviously, um, I have a little bit of a different perspective on that. Now, recently in the news, you know, uh, just for your audience, so there's been a lot of problems with this the so-called FISA applications. These are foreign intelligence surveillance acts. These are wiretaps to listen to mostly foreigners, um, uh, and occasionally American citizen if you believe that they are involved with a foreign intelligence service spying against the U.S. So there's been a lot of issues. It's it's a very secret court, um, uh, a court that seemingly has been willing to accept whatever the FBI has has warranted in its affidavits. Um, and so the Republicans have complained that there's a, this was a political prosecution that Carter Page was political and all that. My view has always been that no, very very unlikely. It's not it's not part of the ethos of being an FBI agent. I don't care which part, I don't care how high up you are in the FBI. The ethos is that no man is above the law. And it's that ethos that actually in some ways has been, it's undoing because there are cases, the Ukraine case that we just talked about, where sometimes politics takes a front seat in front of the, the concept of enforcing the law. Sometimes it's the, it's the greater moral choice. Don't, don't interview. Don't press a, a foreign oligarch because he's instrumental to U.S. policy in Ukraine, and that's more important than a money laundering case out of Seattle. Which, by the way, there would be no chance that they were going to ever, you know, really, you know, th- th- charge him with anything. Uh, it, this, it's just it all. All the only thing that it would do would create antipathy toward the U.S. From this oligarch, who was a friend to to u s interests more important to get Ukraine to join the European Union to get all of the institutions in place to to get the proper training the proper you know to instill the proper um governance in ukraine and and then you know once they're stable economically politically legally you know and and then you get them to join pull them away from the east is that similar is that ethos?
0: Uh, sort of aligned with the idea of why 10 days before the election, James Comey opens up a case against uh, uh, Hillary Clinton?
1: Yeah, that was uh, actually, my first piece in the Hill was exactly why it was entitled, was titled, Why the FBI Appears Politicized and What to Do About It. And in that case, I talk about Ukraine. I talk about the, the, the fact that sometimes you have a, a moral, a choice between two competing moralities, and enforcing the law is not always the highest moral choice. In this case, Clinton, uh, uh, Comey went into everyone's living room and essentially said Hillary Clinton cannot be trusted, and so he disproportionately influenced the electorate. He still, in order for the electorate to be wise, you have to, they have to maintain some sort of independence of, of thought. So. Everybody's trying to co-opt the electorate's Thought Fox News, CNN. Everybody's, uh, you know, they're all trying to think for you. You should believe this. You should do. They. It's for obvious reasons. As a voter, you, you, most voters, believe it or not. I know people think that the crowd is pretty stupid overall, but I, I still believe that overall the crowd is is wise. And part of that wisdom comes from keeping independent, thinking for yourself, getting you influenced by other people, but ultimately you make a decision based on your prism, your world, your, you know, the confines of your experience. So when Comey got on TV and went into everyone's living room and said, you know, Hillary Clinton, what's, what's the exact, was extremely careless. That was the, that was it. That was that. That, in my opinion, could very well, or may very well, have swung the election. Now, there's other things that clearly influence the electorate. Um, you can make an argument. You know, Russia, their 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 activities obviously were tentative. So, who knows whether any one factor influenced the electorate enough? But you're exactly right. That's they, that. That was a that was really essentially the reason why. One of many reasons and, and acts that the FBI uh, uh did, that Comey did, and 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 something that uh, but but the point, the, the important point that I think people needed to understand is that he didn't do it out of malice. He did it because he thought he was doing the right thing. And a lot of these things and the results and the things that happened were, were were just unforeseeable. Um and it's easy for me to make the argument after the fact, and of course I did make the argument after the fact that it, it was it was the wrong thing to do, and I I kind of detailed why, but it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's with anything you it's, you've got to, you know, in order for the crowd to be wise, the electorate to, to be wise, you have to make up your own mind. And in order to make up your own mind, you have to, you have to look at opinions from the, the entire spectrum and understand the perspectives that are not your own.
0: So. Well, I think you're right. And I think obviously we know that there were people that were turned off to Hillary from the beginning and, and just her representing so much of the system that wasn't working for many people and sort of her legacy within within government, which is, you know, whatever whomever prescribed or, or I'm sorry, whomever subscribed to that idea, you know, you weren't going to change their mind no matter what. But then you had these people on the periphery who were, you know fairly undecided as it was getting close as we know right because it literally came down to a couple hundred thousand votes and so you're right for that for someone and and again you know we you look at someone like Mueller and someone like James Comey we we hold these people in such rarefied esteemable air so when they talk we listen and I remember like a week and a half before the election when Comey came out with that I said it's We're done. It's over because you're going to look at this guy and go, what does he have to gain? And, you know, that was, it was curtains.
1: Exactly. Which is a, the criticisms of him are both fair and unfair. Mm. Um, uh, But, but I, I think that, that it's, it's, you know, despite what uh, a segment of the media would have, you believe uh, I, I fail to see any kind of political motive in, in any of the FBI's actions, um, And I, I think that now that they've found problems with multiple FISA's, um, not just the one that involved Carter Page, in some ways it substantiates that. So it's the problems are systemic, they're not specific to one person for political reasons and And most of my colleagues, uh, you know, out of the FBI, the ones that are involved with me and protect the FBI, you know we know that there's there's you know systemic problems in the FBI that need to be addressed. There's things that we would like to do. There's some legislation. there's some policy change we would like to see that would allow FBI line employees, agents, analysts to 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 more easily be able to speak up when they see something wrong, to be able to make a whistleblower complaint without. Fear of retribution from a kind of a rogue FBI manager or, or, and, and, and then then those are things that, that that those are typical in any large organization. And, 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 uh, and and then there's the other, you know, the, the other side of the coin, which is yes, that, that the public tends to believe rightfully so most of the time. You know, if Comey gets in front of an audience or the director gets in, they say something, you, you you should be able to believe that. And most of the time you can, but they are human and they do operate from a certain perspective. And, you know, it, it just the FBI failed to recognize there. there was already guidance in place about making any kind of announcement or decision or public decision or file anything, you know, whether it's a warrant or affidavit that could tend to be perceived as influencing an election or or the electorate. And so just based on, DOJ already had policy in place. Um, And so honestly, there should have been, the shutter should have been drawn months before that election. Um, And there are some investigative steps that could have been taken behind the scenes to further the investigation. If Hillary Clinton got elected, ultimately the results of that investigation should have simply been turned over. Two special counsels, to DOJ, to Congress, to make a decision now in a political process regarding impeachment. And if she lost the election, as she did, then it could then be reopened as a criminal case. But there was no reason for that case to to have been concluded just before the election. It was too, you know. And I listen. It's I know a lot of the guys that were in the room, you know, during that process. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, you know, they couldn't have foreseen, uh, that their actions would, would end up, you know, causing, you know, the three years of acrimony on all sides that they did. They, they tried to do what they thought were the right thing. They knew that there would be some heat. They knew that some things would be perceived as political, but they thought ultimately that, you know, that they were doing the right thing. They were completing a case um, and I believe that the criticism of Clinton was to kind of say, okay, well, yes, but it just doesn't rise to the level and nobody's ever been prosecuted for this before. And when they really shouldn't have been saying anything, it it, it just it's you know, it just should have been it, it should have become non-public at some point well before the election. And this this opinion piece that I wrote, and it's now two or three years old, is just it's I argued that and, and would like to see that going forward. And even during the special counsel investigation, it became very clear that they were going to circumvent the midterm elections and and not make any announcements during the midterms. And that was actually the right decision.
0: Did you have anything to do with the Snowden case? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. No. That was the FBI's. Yeah. But the the FBI handled that, right?
1: They did. Yeah.
0: And what about, what was it like going into work the morning of 9-11?
1: Uh, that actually was pretty interesting. So, you know, it's six o'clock AM here nine o'clock in New York. And I, I actually grew up with, with the world trade center. I was uh, 10 years old. I think when they were, they were going up, they were being built. My dad, uh, he spent his career was, was representing us manufacturers overseas. He was an exporter. And he was a member of the World Trade Association. So we would go, he would have different meetings there and he would take me and, you know, and then, you know, like the one of the, the remake of King Kong with, with, uh, um, Jeff Bridges and, and I can't believe Which be, one, P- the Peter Jackson one? No, this is way, see, Peter Jackson is your generation. Oh, solid. <laughs> this is the one in the seventies, Dino De Laurentiis, I think, uh, uh, King Kong. Okay. And, and, and uh, Jessica Lange was in it. Oh. Got Good cast. I said, as, as a I was must have been about ten or eleven years old. I had a crush on Jessica Lange for the next ten years. But uh, yeah, I went to see. You know, they they did the last scene where the King Kong had fallen off the building between the two World Trade Centers. Well, long story short, uh, I got a call from my mom. Hey, uh, you know, just so you know, I'm watching the news, and a plane flew into the World Trade Center building. And so my first question was, well, what's what's the weather? Well, you know, it's perfectly clear was her answer. And I said, well, that's strange. And then while we're on the phone, the second plane flew in and I knew obviously another plane flies in. It's not an accident. So I, I was the first or one of the first up to the FBI office, which is just up the street from my home in Santa Monica. It's a federal building on, on right off the 405 on Wilshire and veteran. And
0: did you know, and did you know that there was an FBI, I'm sure you did office it, there was an FBI office in the World Trade Center, right? There
1: wasn't. There was a, the Secret Service office was in one of the the uh, buildings, not in one of the two towers. But there was a, a legendary FBI agent, uh, John O'Neill, uh, who, you know, was part of kind of the New York social scene, and ironically, he had warned multiple times uh, in intelligence reports about uh, Al Qaeda's capabilities um, in the, in the years before he left the FBI, he was now the director of security in the world trade center and he lost his life in the buildings, but he was a legendary. I, I think, you know, about uh, Elaine's in New York city with a, like a little a restaurant where a lot of, uh, literary people would hang out authors sure. and stuff. And I think John O'Neill was part of that set and, you know, he would hang out in the lanes and he was just part of the New York social scene. He was just that type of guy. So he was, you know, he was just kind of, he was kind of a guy that maybe I I didn't know him personally. Maybe I spoke to him once. He's the type of guy that like Hemingway would, would write about,
0: Mm.
1: you know, so, um, he was killed. And then then a guy named Lenny Hatton, who I had dealt with on paper once communicating with, he was covering a lead for me in New York. I forget what it was, but I recognize his name. So I know maybe I spoke to him on the phone once, um, he also died. He went, he was a bomb tech, I think at that point, he went into the trade center. So they were the only two FBI people that, 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 that died. Mostly it was, it was a New York first responders. Um, in fact, a friend of mine, Rob Port, documentary filmmaker and, and, and also a director and writer, um, on, on dramatic series. Um, he uh, had been, uh, just doing a lot of footage with, with, uh, I think NYPD has an EMU an emergency medical unit. It's kind of their cops, but they also do, they, they, they've got a dive team. They do different types of emergency, um, uh, quasi SWAT type of things. And he was, he was, um, uh, to, to, you know, taking footage of them and stuff. And they went into the building and they, and they died. And then, and one of the guys that he'd become close with had a brother who was in the fire department? Who went into the other building and died? Jeez. And he ended up cutting all that footage into into the twin towers named after the brothers. Um, and at this point, I can't just can't quite remember the brothers' names. But it was a, a sad story. Their father was a legendary New York fireman. So he, the the point is sure. is that is the first responders in New York, NYPD, the fire department. But you were that, saying that really went in, and 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 though they were the heroes.
0: So you leave your apartment in Santa Monica, you go to the federal building and what's the rest of the day look like?
1: So we start calling people to come in because it's still fairly early. Not everybody's even up. Most people are up. But so we, we, we spin up the, um, uh, uh, crisis center, EOC emergency operations center. And we start getting leads out of headquarters in DC, um, go interview this guy, go. So the theory starts to develop, you know, usually it'll come with a phone call, paper. It's just a massive, massive amount of, it's, it's melee. It's, it's like, it's, it's organized chaos. And sometimes it's just not that organized, but now the entire office is now engaged. Um, I didn't leave the office for three days. So I, I slept in my car on the roof of the garage that we've got our own garage up there. And for the next three days, I mean, when those buildings came, I had to choke back tears. You know, I had a connection that a lot of the guys in LA, they were not not from New York. They didn't, they didn't, uh, the buildings had, I, my first job was in the World Trade Center. So aside from everything that I had told you, my first job was working for Deloitte, Haskins and Sells. Now it's Deloitte and Touche on the 91st floor of World Trade One or the 95th floor, whatever we are, of world, world Trade One. And I'd been to weddings in the, in the, in the, in the windows on the world. So it was, it was, it was difficult to, to, and, 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 you know, you gotta be, listen, I'm an FBI agent, a room full of FBI agents. I got I'm, I'm choking back tears. I don't want anybody to see me cry. So, um, it, it's, it was, it was, uh, difficult. And then we started, yeah, you know, shifts, we can get relief. I remember coming home and, and, you know, everything became so unimportant, right? Dry movies. Drama, you know, there was a kind of a quiet time where actors, you know, everybody kind of, yeah, obviously that the, 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 aside from the unfortunate loss of life, the focus was on, you know, law enforcement, the investigation, the rescue effort, and all those things. Um, but the first break I had, maybe three days later, came home, finally change of clothes. And I watched a movie that was on cable. It was the X-Men and it was the best two hours of TV I have ever watched in my life. I have never enjoyed. It was the biggest escape for me. And I still remember to this day. It's still one of the ridiculously bad movie in some respects. It was actually pretty good. So I loved it. Right. You know, it's uh, it was, it was just, it took my mind off of it. And then for the next several weeks, you know, I was part of it just a team it wasn't i wasn't a counterterrorism agent so the case wasn't mine i wasn't central I was helping out doing this doing that and then the kidnapping case the organized kidnapping case where ultimately five americans were kidnapped and killed and dumped in a reservoir the one would traveled to the emirates and all that. So that's a case that's now been documented um on, uh, on, you know, there's some, some crime dramas on it, like, uh, investigation discovery and there's yeah. some shows on it. Um, the Russians are killing, uh, is one of them it's, pre- it's actually pretty good. So that case started and then I spent the next seven years working on that case or five and a half years. And then another year of trials, so six and a half years on that case.
0: But is that like, when you talk about, you talked about it early on in the interview that everyone had left on a Friday night at five o'clock and then some information came down and everyone had to rush back to the office or, you know, despite the level of tragedy of something like nine 11, but when you're there for three days straight and it is a melee and it's all hands on deck, are these the moments that people like you live for? Like, is that kind of why you joined the Bureau to be that necessary and to really when, I heard someone say this who worked in the White House once. He said, "When breaking news happened, I knew I had to go to work, and it was a very exciting and wonderful feeling to know that that was my business." Is there a part of you that that feels that way?
1: Is as, as much as you hate to to phrase it that way, because these types of situations inherently involve tragedy, mm. and. The kidnapping case was as tragic as they get um, on a micro level. And then on a macro level, 9-11 was obviously devastating, both to the people who died and to the country as a whole. But the answer is yes. You do the job because you want to make a difference. But there is uh, an adrenaline flow. Um, you're being called into action. You're, you know, it's, You don't want these things to happen you'd rather go through my whole career with them never happening but that's what you sign up for and 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 i was you know in some ways lucky enough to be on a squad we call them squads which uh, addressed violent crime and organized crime and and kidnappings and things like that so i got to see this a little bit more now my type of work became less relevant after 9-11 Um, And over time, you know, I I got involved in in other things, but mostly I spent my entire career, you know, I have an, I'm an accountant, I'm a CPA, but as soon as, as early as I can in the FBI, I, 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 I was determined from the start to get away from using the CPA for anything. And ironically, on the kidnapping case, I actually testified as an expert. In, in bookkeeping and in accounting and QuickBooks right uh, on that part of the case, I was able to bring that to the table, but it was on a kidnapping case. It wasn't on a, it wasn't on Bernie Madoff or anything like
0: that. So. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to be a cook in the army. You know what I mean? <laughs> you don't want to be the, the accountant guy in the FBI. Um, <laughs> When you, um, when you were, although
1: you want the cook to be a pretty decent one, no, so, they're they're
0: yeah. very important. Oh yeah. my god! But like when when you were um, for the twenty four years that that you were an agent, even when you were off the job and as you know walking around in quotes as a civilian, were you always did you always uh, carry a weapon?
1: I I almost always carried a weapon. Yeah, it, yeah. It um, had a small one which would go on the ankle or. or uh, I'm actually happy to no longer be carrying a weapon. I, it's 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 a certain amount of freedom, believe it or not. Um, it's a responsibility, huge, huge, um, and I won't go into the stories here or there where I actually, as all agents occasionally do, leave your weapon behind for a short period of time before you That's realize awesome. it, and 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 the and the oh shit factor is. Is 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 pretty pretty substantial. So, but I would imagine
0: a, while when you're an agent, even and on your off time, you have to feel like there could definitely be a target on my back. Like I don't know, possibly who I might
1: come into contact with or who's looking at me. Yeah, years ago, before nine eleven, I would carry it. Uh, I, I happen to be Jewish. I'd synagogue. You know, I carry it to 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 temple, synagogue, shul, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, I remember being with my cousins and my cousins were astonished and mad that I actually would carry my weapon into, in, into synagogue. This is before nine eleven, And now of course, after nine eleven, eleven, they make sure that they're sitting next to me. Of course, you can't go so, to a synagogue without seeing yeah. someone who's strapped. I look at, I look at, look at the recent incident in the church in Texas. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and, and, and I don't want to turn this into a political speech about uh, weapons or handguns or, or, or pistols or anything, but, but, uh, it, it was a function of the job, and 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 uh, you want to be ready. And uh, listen, when you're trained at the academy, sometimes you're trained that that uh, listen, you may be a witness to a certain situation, and the, the right move may simply be to be the best witness you can be. Mm. Meaning, it may be more prudent not to act because maybe just uh, you know maybe you make the judgment that if you don't act, they're going to leave. Maybe it's a bank robbery; they're going to leave they'll be on tape. Maybe you'll go get the license plate as the car is driving away. It's on video. Whereas if you act, you may not only, you know, you could get hurt or, or killed, but you may cause somebody else to get, so you have to make those decisions. You, well, it's, it's, the, it's the type of job that, you know, listen, when I was uh, uh, getting ready to become an FBI agent, it's a nice Jewish boy. I had to, to explain this to my family who, you know, were. Nervous and accepted it, and yeah, and we're I, great. We're great at nervous us Jews. Yeah, we, we are. <laughs> so I had to explain it to my to my ninety uh, year old grandmother, and this is kind of a famous family story. My grandma Barbara and my grandma, you know, listen. When we, when we go to arrest somebody as an FBI agent, if we if we go to arrest one person, we'll we'll take two, and if we go to arrest two, we'll take four, and if we go to arrest five, we'll take ten. She said, "Good, stand in the back." <laughs> <laughs> great. <laughs> That's, perfect. That's a Jewish, perfect Jewish grandmother story. Perfect so.
0: Jewish grandmother uh, advice. So uh, as we wrap up, before I ask my last question, I want to sort of talk about protect the FBI and whatnot, because this is sort of the, the next chapter of your life after you left the agency.
1: It is one of them at least. So no, thank you for asking me about this. And I, I just definitely want to direct everybody to take a look at our website, but Uh, We have we've got a mission. It's a nonpartisan mission. And and the organization is composed of former FBI professionals and and concerned citizens. And our mission is to safeguard the FBI from partisan politics or more specifically to safeguard the, the FBI from being used for political purposes by either political party. And, you know, we're a forward looking organization. We don't really assign blame to specific individuals. You know when when I started this organization back in, in in began in about 2016 when I began to think about it. I, you know, talked to people in coffee shops, people on the left, on the right, you know, some an occasional speaking engagement or, or whatever. And and the most common perception that people had of the FBI is that uh, you know, regardless of their politics, is that the f b i either has been or can be politicized now I don't think that it it has been certainly not in modern times. I know that the Republicans will disagree with that and 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 uh you know a Democrat will say, well, it certainly can be now, you know, and they'll point to 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 William Barr. I'm just giving you with a different um uh, um uh, you know political entities or interests would what might say. Uh, but i will say that that uh, it can be because it has been and you really only need to look back as far as watergate to see it uh, and l patrick gray the director of the fbi at the time and and you know the fbi can be politicized and so there's a there's a few different things that we're doing so uh, we have a congressional liaison team and 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 we also have a pledge and you know intelligence is the one thing that should be uniting the country it's not a democrat thing it's not a republican thing and and quite frankly, the House Select, you know, uh, um, uh, Committee on on Intelligence, which uh, House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence is called, it used to be run by a guy, former FBI agent, became a congressman in Michigan, Mike Rogers, and he was the the um, uh, he was the the chairman, and then the the minority leader of the committee, uh, the ranking member, I think it's called, was Dutch Ruppersberger, a, a congressman out of Maryland, and. Mike Rogers went to, to to Dutch and he said, look, I, I want to do, intelligence is not political. I want to do fact-based decision-making. Uh, we're going to do reports together. We're going to stand in front of the microphone together. And, and that's the way that we should do this. And and, and Mike Rogers now runs a bi, bipartisan policy center. Um, and uh, I think Dutch Ruppersberger, I think he's no longer a congressman. I'm not sure. Maybe he's still in office. But you contrast that with, with Nunez and Schiff and And you know the early reports on um the the inner workings of the f b i and what actually occurred with Carter Page and all that with the FISA this is well before the inspector general's report came out. There are early you know they did two separate investigations essentially or they did the same investigation, but they wrote two separate reports, and quite frankly, both reports did not tell the whole story so mm. um and and that just it's just it's unacceptable, so we have a pledge it's based on. Fidelity, bravery, integrity, which is the FBI's motto. And it, it, it's essentially, uh, we're going to try to get our congressmen to pledge to 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 do intelligence in a cross-partisan manner, in a fact-based manner, to write one report. And that doesn't mean there can't be a minority and a majority opinion in the report. But it should be in the same report, and it should be something which they do with their eyes wide open. And, and uh, there should rarely be a disagreement. Uh, of that nature. But, but we accept the fact that there, there could be. So.
0: Love it. All right. Final question. Um, what are your one or two commandments truths that you have discovered that you'd want to impress upon someone else?
1: Wow. Okay. Um, I would say that one of the most important things in life is to realize that, You know, when you're twenty-five, you think you know everything. And you don't know that you don't know everything. You really think to one extent or another, you know, when you're 35, you begin to realize that not only do you not know everything, but you're, you know, you're 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 gonna know more, you get wiser. There's a certain component of wisdom that is tied to age and age alone. And there's only way to get that wisdom is through just a sheer number of years so you know it's it's so you can have a really I've I've you got some very very bright friends I I yeah uh, 10 years ago I was dating somebody who was in their early 20s so I was in my you know late 30s early 20 they had three questions wrong on the SAT they were one of the brightest people that I know but I also recognized that there was an aspect of her that just simply didn't have the wisdom that comes with experience so what I know now that at, you know at 54 is that I'm going to know more at 64 and I am never going to even come close to knowing everything and every opinion that I just gave in the last hour and a half, you know, you, you could be just as success, successful doing the complete opposite, uh, just as likely to be successful doing the complete opposite is if you listen to everything that I say. So it's just, you know, it's, 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 who knows? It's, it's, it's what, it's what I believe. It's, it's my point of view. And, and that's, that's it. I think that might be it.
0: I love it. Um, you you sized me up right now. You think I got what, what it takes for the FBI?
1: I, I think that you're going to make a great Turner.
0: Thank you. All right. I'll take it. <laughs> Thanks so much, man.
1: You're welcome. Thanks, awesome. Josh. All right.
0: That was it. That was James. Come on. How good was that? Right? It's fun. We're learning here. We're experiencing. We're gathering information. We're becoming better people together anyway guys thanks for listening please make sure to rate and review the podcast it really helps and if you don't want to do it don't do it because what you you owe me nothing you literally owe me 0.0 um but if you're like in a silly mood and you want to rate the pod it really helps it but nevertheless thank you for listening talk to you later bye